Good evening and happy Black History Month to our neighbors and listeners. Coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning Info Hub Hour with Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. And I'm Maleka Fruin here with six-month-old Vayu. I live here in Germantown with my family. The Info Hub Hour is all about news and engagement in Germantown. You can check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org. First and foremost, we want to do an oral acknowledgement of the rich history of Black people and experiences in our diverse neighborhood of Germantown. Germantown is a place that harbors early fights for freedom, like the 1688 Quakers petition against slavery, or the Johnson House, which was used to hide and support Black folks on their journey to freedom from enslavement. And we've been home to generations of literary and artistic geniuses like Sun Ra, Sonia Sanchez, Tammy Terrell, Bilal, and so many more names, some of whom are products of our no longer operating Germantown High School. And we continue to maintain the legacy of Black businesses and ownership in this neighborhood. Whether you want a sweet treat from Lily of the Valley on Shelton Avenue or seeking a plant baby from Collective Artistry on Maplewood Mall, there is a Black business to fit all of your needs. This month, I pinned a piece for our website detailing how folks can honor Black history in Germantown this month and every other, including attending one of the many Black-focused museums like the Black Writers Museum, donating to a community fridge, or learning about period property by supporting the nation's very first menstrual hub, which resides here in Germantown. To read more about this, you can visit germantowninfohub.org. Vayu is really excited about all those businesses <laughs> and all those ideas. First up, and just in time for Valentine's Day next Monday, we're going to be listening to a collection of community voices talking about why they love Germantown. Love is in the air, so we thought of no better way to celebrate than to have some folks show their appreciation for what is called Freedom's Backyard, and we're calling it the Love Letters to Germantown. Rashid has been working on these all week, and I'm so excited to hear them. Let the tape play. My name is David Cheney Jr. I moved to Germantown in 2019. I love Germantown because I'm a educator, I'm a historical person. So I love just the historical aspect of the neighborhood. I mean, every corner you turn on, there's like some historical landmark or a trademark in the neighborhood. And so it's like you can't go far without bumping into some type of historical perspective or artifact, rather. Also, I love Germantown because of the community. It's different. You know, one thing I can say about Philly, it's, it's full of neighborhoods, but every neighborhood has its own culture, its own flavor. And Germantown has a very distinct flavor, a, di a distinct culture to it. Um, and, and, you know, people talk about Germantown, it's like the creme de la creme. It's like G-Town, and there's so many different little neighborhoods within Germantown itself. Yeah, th those are a couple, of, just a couple of reasons. And then it's, how should I say it? It's a place where you can walk and find a surprise. And what I mean by that, you know, um, a few months ago, maybe 2020, around the pandemic time, when people were just starting to come out their houses again, people, they were, you know, we was being a little lenient. I remember 
I, that's how I discovered uh, Maplewood Mall and some of the shops on that mall, like some of the Black-owned restaurants, the Black-owned um, plant shop, like these Black-owned businesses. And Germantown has a plethora of those. You know, I live on a block with a Black-owned bakery. So it's like, that's dope to me that I can find all these little hidden surprises and gems right in my backyard. So what I would like to be in Germantown is it's just love and peace. And in doing that, that means um, keeping neighbors informed about certain things that are happening, um, you know, sharing information, you know, uh, sharing resources, uh, keeping our blocks clean, keeping our neighborhood clean and, and treating it as a village mentality. You know, you see something that, that don't look right, say something, speak out. You know, we got to look out for one another at the end of the day. So definitely love and peace through through community service. My name is Jordan Waynes. I was born and raised in Germantown. I love Germantown because Germantown gave me a sense of community. I don't think I would have got anywhere else. Growing up in Germantown, I didn't have the best home life, but it was really the community that showered me. I'm a kid that went to my neighborhood schools in Germantown. I went to Emlyn, where I had teachers like Mr. Reduce and Ms. Kotzko that really, you know, shaped and molded me, let me know somebody cared. I went to Roosevelt. I had neighborhood community people who, you know, in some light weren't the best people to others, but to us, they didn't care. You know, we didn't know their background, so it didn't matter to kids. They would give us dollars in the morning going to school, you know, knowing that we didn't always come from the best backgrounds. I went to Germantown High where teachers like Mr. Jimenez, would bring in lawyers to even talk to some kids about what they had going on. The little stuff like that. Germantown, just in a sense. Nine times out of ten, if you live in Germantown, you're from Germantown. So that sense of community is just something you don't get in many other places. I would like to leave Germantown to thank you. Thank you for the days that you nurtured me. Thank you for the days you made me feel whole. You know, thank you for everything. Thing. Thank you for the corner store trips, the getting off the XH and, you know, getting off the 18 and getting even getting off the H at time. So thank you, Germantown, for everything you've done for me, whether it be Fridays, Jumar, the Magic, whatever it be. Thank you, Germantown. My name is Monica O. Montgomery. I am the newly minted director of community engagement and programs at Historic Germantown and a former, lovingly former resident of Germantown. I love Germantown because it feels so welcoming. It's physically beautiful and it's an amazing, creative, storied, scrappy, <laughs> heart-filled place that shaped me, has shaped many others, and is home to a lot of Black brilliance. I would like to leave Germantown a testimony and a Yelp review <laughs> that I really am grateful for coming across this hidden gem of a neighborhood and its residents that have wholeheartedly embraced me, employed me, <laughs> and welcomed me as a resident. I'm grateful to have started my nonprofit career taking classes at Mount Airy Learning Tree. 
I'm grateful to have worked in the neighborhood, working with kids and caregivers who are helping folks on the autism spectrum. And I'm super grateful now to be back on a high note, to be working with 18 museums and historic sites to make sure they can be responsive and beholden to the communities that they serve. So this is a a high five, a testimony, a Yelp review, highly recommend, five stars. Germantown is awesome. My name is Nomad. My affiliation to Germantown is I've lived here my entire life, even though I stepped away for a few years. I came back in 2016. I've been here since there's been a farmer's market across the street from Germantown High School. I've been here since Germantown High School was actually a high school. That's 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 my affiliation to it. My family was born and raised in on Duval Street. So I have a lot of roots in Germantown and I'm still here trying to make things right. The things I love about Germantown is the culture. I feel like there's a lot when when I was growing up, I felt like there was a lot of just diversity as far as like you can see so many different things from Quakers cooking uh what's the name of those moon pies to we had a Annie Ann's at the farmer's market. Like you get what I'm saying? So it was like growing up, you could you could have all these different things, but it's still home. And never, one thing I didn't notice until I moved away from Germantown was how fortunate and I guess I could say lucky we were to have these different cultures infusing just the everyday culture. Like it's some things that you think and like, oh, that's that's part of it. Germantown and they're like no that's that's not part of Germantown but it was part of our culture so um that was something that I really loved about Germantown and just the attitude of just residents and the people around I love the nature I love the all the trees I love everything about Germ- like the architecture is I could go on for for hours but we only got five minutes so but I just I just love Germantown I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the city honestly if you were to ask me the offering I would like to leave Germantown is leaving it in a better position than when I got here. And it's kind of weird because in the 80s, it was actually like like Germantown was the place to be. And now it seems like it's going under because of gentrification, development, all these things that are um, being planned to let it kind of go under before they bring it to, hey, look, this is the new new Kensington, the new German Kensington or whatever, like, but I just want to leave, I just want to leave a mark of um, art and black beauty in Germantown. Like I want to, I want all the black people from Germantown, all the black kids to know that they can be whatever they want. And I want, I want people to know that you don't have to be a product of your environment. And I also want you to know that the, your environment even though it's your reality, it's not the world. So it's like you can step outside of your environment and then you can come back and actually make it make it better to your standards, whatever standards those are for you, because everybody has different standards of what they feel like is better. But I just want people to know that you can you can change you can change your reality. It, it doesn't have to be like that or it doesn't have to be a way that you don't want it to be. My name is Art Haywood. I'm a state senator representing Germantown in Harrisburg. I want folks to know, I lived at 404 West Chelton in my first year of marriage. Then we moved to 329 West Logan uh, shortly thereafter. So I lived in uh, Germantown for many years. My uh, youngest, uh, my son went to Germantown Friends School and we love Germantown. The shopping, Fernhill Park. You may not know I was a committee person 
at Happy Hollow Playground for a few years, helping individuals uh, learn what was at stake in voting, giving them recommendations for voting as well. So my whole community service in Philly began in Germantown. So many good friends there. I also love, not just that I used to live in Germantown, but the strong organizations, whether they are uh, the Johnson House, the Media Freedom Backyards, whether it is Vernon Park, the tremendous park that we have, whether it's uh, so many different community organizations that take a stand on pretty much every issue you can imagine, Maplewood Mall, I enjoy everything about Germantown. But if I said the one thing that I like the most, it would be the diversity of people. There's tremendous diversity, people from all nations. It's a tremendous diversity. And that diversity creates so much of a rich atmosphere, where to shop, what foods you can eat. Germantown is so rich. The offering I would like to leave to Germantown is love one another. This is my main offering actually for the entire year to everyone. And when I say love one another, I think we can love one another through mentoring our young men and women. That's loving one another. Cleaning up blocks that we know have full of trash and debris. That's loving one another. Seeing a neighbor and saying hi, you know, not just walking by them. That is a beginning of love one another. So that is my wish for Germantown, that we look at how we can love one another in our daily lives. Naja Killebrew. I lived in Germantown for more than 40 years. I went to school in Germantown, Ada Lewis Middle School, and my mother still lives in Germantown. And I live in Germantown now. I love Germantown because, well, number one, it has a rich history. Um, I love the uh, the buildings and the architecture. And I love the neighborly feel that we've always had. Growing up in Germantown, we were always very, very close with our neighbors. And it's always been like a big family vibe for me with Germantown. So one of the things I love most about it. That was our love letters to Germantown. Continuing the conversation of Black history in today's episode, it is undoubtedly noted that 2020 was a historic year for racial justice, not only in Philadelphia, but throughout the world. After the untimely deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and other Black folks in the country, uprisings spread from city to city, demanding equality, care, and protection for Black people in the United States. It should be no surprise that Philadelphia played a huge role in that. That's right. And Rashid got to sit down. <laughs> I know. Buy you for Black Lives. Buy you for Black Lives. Rashid got to sit down with co-authors and co-editors of a new book, How We Stay Free, Notes on a Black Uprising, which is an anthology in action highlighting the 2020 Philadelphia uprisings, which span from May 2020 to October 2020. Rashid is actually one of the contributors of the book, and they're in discussion with two other Philadelphians about their Freedom John platform and its relevance to the uprisings. We'll hear their interview with Chris Rogers and Faja Muhammad right now. So who are Chris Rogers and Faja Muhammad as individuals? Oh, wow. That's a good place to start. 
that's a good question. I always set it off. I'll let yeah. Chris go first. Okay, I like that. Okay. Well, first of all, Chris Rogers, he, him pronouns. I was born and raised in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is like, I would say like a cousin of Philadelphia, though we might not visit each other much. You know what I'm saying? We got our own thing happening in Chester. And then after graduate school, I ended up, uh, I transferred from uh, Cheney to University of Pennsylvania in like 2012. And that brought me more into the city, brought most more of my life into the city. And since then have been like really like digging in and helping with a lot of sort of like black cultural production throughout the city, involved in a lot of educational organizing, and then kind of made a home over here at the Paul Robeson House and Museum in West Philadelphia. It was right after uh, Mama Fran, Francis Alston, who founded and, you know, birthed the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance and the Paul Robeson House and Museum. She passed after a long battle with cancer in 2015. And I started volunteering right like in her wake and thinking of like, this is the legacy that I want to like uphold, continue, make sure there's space for. And that's when I started building with Miss Renoka Michael and been at the Robeson House ever since. That's a little bit just about my context background. I think what brings me into the work that I do with the Robeson House now as program director. Very cool. I would say Chester, yeah, we're close cousins. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am Faja Muhammad. I am a writer, artist, editor. I am from Philadelphia, born and raised. Went to school, creative and performing arts. I went to the PA state school system, Kutztown University. Um, I did my MFA at Columbia. So I was in New York for a little bit. Um, and what brings me to this project, I think in terms of that context. So I'm a writer, came to literature very, very early as a young person, decided very early that I wanted to be a writer. It's the only job that I've ever wanted to, to do. And a couple of books kind of really spurred me, of course, like Toni Morrison is just like my patron saint. I mean, I think everything that she does is just complicated and complex. And she really, really delves very deeply into not only just like white supremacy and racism in the Black community, but also just like us as people and the interiority of Black people. So that's the thing I really love about her fiction is that she delves into her characters' inner worlds. And in my own kind of creative practice, writing practice, I'm always concerned and very deeply, deeply interested in Black people, Black people outside of white supremacy, <laughs> Black people outside of our relationship to white people, and very much just telling our stories, the stories that we talk about when we just, you know, are just shooting, like, can I curse? <laughs> when we just shoot in the mess um, with our families and our friends, the kind of deep conversations that we have amongst ourselves. I'm always interested in telling those kind of stories. Thank you for that. And no, we can't curse. <laughs> so okay. Thank you for asking. I couldn't get myself off mute enough time. And I was like, Ooh, I'm I didn't, I didn't hear it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take okay. it as a no. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so now let's talk about the book. So tell our neighbors with how we stay free notes on a black uprising is. Yeah. Um, so how we stay free notes on a black uprising is really, you know, we call it like an anthology in action, right? And it was a way for the uh, Paul Robeson House Museum. Um, we had to close our doors in the, uh, to the sort of like pandemic. So like the physical site of the house was not, you know, through the health and safety, we sort of just like closed it off. But we're thinking about like, what does it mean to carry on our work in this moment? What would, you know, Uncle Paul and Aunt Essie, you know, Aunt Essie as an Eslanda Robeson, someone's whose legacy we also need to uplift what would they be doing in this moment, right? And it really just came through like a dare, 
right? Got this email from Emma Eisenberg at Blue Stoop from the Independence Public Media Community Voices Fund. It was all about like, how do we uplift community voices in this moment, right? Around the, the pandemic, but also like, you know, dueling pandemics, right? There's also this, this ongoing sort of like pandemic of racial injustice as it was sort of like being talked about at the time. And we said like, we want to do something that uplifts, you know, those who are on the front lines of our movements, right? Paul Robeson has a, a long legacy of, of doing that. Anytime he would travel to a, uh, an area or even go outside of the country, he would try to meet with the movement leaders, right? And think about how my concerts, my music, my performances can be, you know, can lift up campaigns that are ongoing, lift up movements, lift up historical figures and culture that were part about making people stronger, right? About making movements stronger. Um, so this book kind of comes out of that relationship and thinking of like, what is our responsibility to local Black-led movement in this time? And how can we help, you know, document, archive, uplift the stories, the histories, but also more, more, more importantly, the lessons, how people get involved, what are the strategies, what are the frameworks people need to understand, what are the avenues, right? The, for the ways in which liberation work happens. So I think that was kind of like what, it, what it's about. And through the collection, you get to see a, a number of voices all throughout the city. And I'll pass it to Fasha to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think you said, you said it all. It's, that um, is exactly <laughs> it. Focusing on the lessons, um, having a diverse set of voices, a diverse set of practices, a diverse set of actions. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. So it's powerful stuff and what both of you said, and people will get to interact with that. So let's highlight the journey for a little bit. So how did this project begin? And how did the dynamic duo begin partnering on this collection? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it started with an email from Emma, right? Yep. Um, I want to say, I always think about this, like, why did Emma email me? So I've been on the board of Blue Stoop since 2018, 2019. And that's a nonprofit literary organization in Philadelphia that provides author events and classes, as well as scholarships to writers across the city for education. And I think she, so I went out to to the action. I cannot remember the day. It might have been like Memorial Day weekend um, or like into that early, that end of May, early June time period, right in front of like City Hall, when all of like the, the spectacles, the, the, the police car was set on fire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I posted a lot of that stuff on my Instagram. I'd taken my nephews out there and had to, you know, drag them, drag them to protest. But she had seen that. And then I think she reached out to me to say, hey, is this a project that you'd be interested in? I think she, Chris, you and Emma had already kind of spoken about the project that you were looking for an editor. So she had reached out to me. And I think I say this all the time, so I feel like a little bit of a broken record, but I feel like when we started to conceptualize the project and, and decide like what the parameters were gonna be and like what the insights or what the idea was, the thing that just kept hitting me was if I was to read this book or see this book in a bookstore, it would be one of those things that I would be like, I wish I was involved in that. Like, you know, you just see things throughout the city and you're like, well, how? when did that happen? Who are these people? Like, I want to be involved in, involved in that. So to me, it was definitely just something that I wanted to be involved in. I think, Chris, you and I got on, like, very well from the very beginning. And we were just able to kind of, like, I think with your connections and you just, just knowing everybody, 
through the house and through all of your different walks of life. And then I think with my kind of editorial narrative ideas, how to shape it, how to help each of the contribu- contributors be, make their pieces better, stronger, more true. We just kind of worked back and forth and got it done. <laughs> I, I throw in some, I throw in, I don't know yeah. if I've ever told Fajr this story. So the first time I learned, well, I met Fajr two times before we started working together. The first one was Fajr was a volunteer, Blue Stoop and Paul Robeson House Museum collaborated on an event at the Institute of Contemporary Art yep. called um, like, it was like West Philly Stories, right? Mm-hmm. You had uh, Louis Messiah from Scribe Video Center, Mike Africa Jr., Zinzi Clemens, and Asali Solomon. And that was the first time that I met Faja, someone who's on the board of Blue Stoop. And I'm like, hold on, we got a new generation of like black women Philly novelists and writers out this joint. We like, I know some of the poets, but Who's, who's Faja Muhammad, right? So that's the first time that I think I was like, I got to figure out what, what I got to, yeah, I'm really interested in finding more about her work. And then the second time I'm at Penn Book Center doing my little bookseller, you know, book buying thing. And Faja Muhammad's leading the conversation with uh, Brandon Taylor around this novel called Real Life. And I'm like, man, for someone who's like deeply grounded, like Faja Muhammad, that's a deeply Philly name. I was just like, man, I'm really excited to see her work, right? And I think as we got on to this project, it was, you know, better than even I could imagine in terms of just like someone who's so interested, deeply interested and engaged in telling Black Philadelphia stories, telling our histories from someone that is not, you know, trying to appease the white gaze. And I was, you know, deeply excited to work with Faja around this work and really excited for like, you know, what it means to be a Black writer in this time. So I feel like I'm always sort of like carving out space for Faja to be like, yo, what's, tell me about this writing life. What's this writing life like? Uh, so I think like that dynamic duo is also about like, it's not just this project, but it's a relationship yeah. that is about like taking care of our culture, preserving our culture, uplifting our culture into the world, right? Well, thank you so much for that. I'm over here just la- laughing and, and blushing, but I think you do that I'm just going to add this too on top of that. I think you you do that very well in terms of you are able to identify what a person does, what a person is is good at, what their niche is, and then like either like continue to help pull or coax it out of them or just like plummet them with stuff. Like, hey, you need to look at this. You need to check this out. You need to check this out. And I really appreciated that in the process of this and, you know, just going forward our, our friendship and relationship. And I think you did that a lot in the book as well, able to just like poke and question and prod and say like, where can we dig deeper or where can we pull back? And that was just a great part of the process. I think the overarching theme of that answer was that <laughs> she was always a company. Um, even for us here at the Info Hub, I have Maleka and it's <laughs> always amazing to have somebody watching your blind spots and yeah. mm-hmm. also being able to pick up where you can't. Like mm-hmm. that's why co-leadership is really everything. So tell me about the bookmaking process that you both embarked on. So for yourselves and the contributors, so Faja, at Saturday's celebratory gathering, you had spoke about accessibility. And I think that that's something that anyone interacting with this book should know about. Because as a contributor, even though I, you know, already do like public radio, I do journalism and things like that, I still felt empowered in the creation stages. So talk about those things for me and for the audience. 
That's awesome. Um, I'm glad that you felt that way. Um, I think in terms of like editing, the process really is to me to be as open to what what the writer, what the artist wants to do. Um, and then figure out, like you said, where those blind spots, blind, blind can't speak, blind spots are, where those areas of like deeper inquiry, deeper exploration are, and then help help you guys to be able to pull those things out. So I'm always just glad when you guys have felt supported through this editorial process. Can you repeat the question again? I was about to go. Oh no, you're good. So basically, oh, okay. I was just asking. If accessibility about, yeah the accessibility part because you brought that up on yeah. saturday at the celebration and i think that goes also into the bookmaking process right so yeah talking, yeah um so in terms of accessibility i think it was on a bunch of different a few different levels right like so from just an overall standpoint in terms of this is not an academic text i think we kind of came to that that determination very early on in the process in the bookmaking process in terms of like what area avenue that we want this book to fall in. I think it can fall and lean over. There are parts of this that do have academic bents, you know, Jazz Riley, um, their PhD, candidate in African-American studies. We also have some journalistic text, Cassie Owens from the Inquirer. So I think we wanted to kind of like span the, the gamut, but also kind of really set in this space of, this is a book that anybody can pick up and mm -hmm. find something in it that they can, that will resonate, that they can enter into just from like a topical standpoint and just from like an overall narrative standpoint. I think the other part for me too was just like on a language level as well, like just making sure that it's something that anybody can pick up and, and enter into and not feel intimidated by, that we're not over explaining things. That that was one of the big things that we, one of the larger conversations that we had in the process was just, okay, this feels like a very Philadelphia book and trying to lean into that kind of hyper-local approach while not having to feel like we have to explain every, every you know, nook and cranny, every nuance, right, to somebody who is outside of, outside of this space, even in terms of some of the conversations and thoughts around Black liberation as well. Like, I think there was one part where we were like, it might have been the word John, which I kind of was laughing at because I was just like, who doesn't know what that means at this point? <laughs> um, but it was just like they wanted us to explain it in a footnote and I think Chris and I both were like yeah no <laughs> like no no like I, I feel like there are things that need to be held um, so that somebody one from Philadelphia can pick up this book I feel like it is a very Philadelphia book but the other piece too was just that somebody like the thing that was always in the back of my mind in terms of accessibility too was just like my nephews right like they're 17 and 19 they didn't want to go to the protest. They did not want to go to the, the action. Me and my, my sister dragged them like, listen, like y'all need to know what's going on in the world. Y'all need to know what's happening out here. Um, but for them, as they form their opinions, as they form their political opinions, whether they be radical, conservative, whatever, that they have something that they can pick up and say, okay, I was there that day. Here's what happened. Here is you know, some deeper context to what happened. Um, and then they can go from there. Yeah, and just to add on to that accessibility part, I feel like uh, I think one of the beautiful things in terms of the process is Faj and I committed to these uh, Saturday sessions in January of 2021, where it was like open call, folks who are thinking about writing about their experiences in 2020, and just hop on the call, let's talk through it. 
and let's figure out what types of contributions can come up. And there were, you know, people of different generations on that call. One piece that, man, I'm, she's a, she's a long-term supporter of the Paul Ripson House Museum, but she, she teaches a, a course for adults. It's like a literacy course for adults uh, downtown. And in the midst of 2020, she flipped her entire adult literacy course, right? To be about like responding to this moment, right? And the idea of like, so in the open calls, she was telling us about like the types of conversations she was having with these adult learners about just, you know, the different factors, whether it's the ways that COVID is impacting folks' employment, the need for, you know, secure, secure and stable housing um, during, like, during this time. And like th those conversations that we were having, Samira, Miss Samira Woods. Samira uh, Woods. Yeah. So the conversation that we were having about folks who, like, in some ways may feel, have, have been taught or have been, you know, taught to feel insecure about their own ways of expressing themselves, even though they sit and have, you know, understand that their own experiences and what they know to be solutions to the problems they are facing are like right there in their grasp. And how in some ways, this, those folks have been taught that like, I still need to look to other experts. I need to look to outside to, you know, help solve these issues. So I feel like those calls and particularly like, when I think about that experience of like hearing how Samira was working with her students and thinking about how they were, you know, navigating these issues. And in some way that it's like, it's, it's real, like it's, it's a space of learning, but it's also a space that I got to get these words out. And I think that was the type of coaching that we wanted to sort of like have with the many people that we worked with in this book of like, yo, um, you know, one of the quotes I always come back to Zora Neale Hurston says, we win from within, right? And realizing that we have these visions of how the world should shift. We have the vi visions uh, and understand what our liberation looks and feels like. And now we just need the space to document and express that and build communities around that. So it was like, how do we, you know, push people to like, yo, step into that, say it, say it, you know what I mean? And I think that coaching and that, that feel that you get from the stories says like, you're not going to get the whole documentation of what was happening in 2020, but what you will get is like, this is what I came through. This is what I went through. And I think this is where we need to go. So I hope folks feel that when they read the book. Yeah. And I also think it was great that we as contributors got to work on what we wanted to rather than being like assigned something and giving like an entire, I guess you can say rubric of this is what you have to put in there. And y'all work with that and like tweaked it to like to keep our voice, but to make sure, you know, it had a little polish on it. You know, you can have a little stink and a little polish at the same time. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, just I thank you for expanding on that. I just wanted to share my sentiments around that as well, because I thought that was important. And so it's noted, and you noted earlier, Chris, that this is an anthology in action. And it's no also noted that it's rooted in Philadelphia's Black radical tradition. So talk mm -hmm. about what that means for people. For sure. Um, and that also is a reminder that I don't know we can leave this interview without hearing from your side. Uh, you're about the contribution that you made and what you hope to come from the project. So I hope we come back to that. Uh, but in responding to your question, I think, so I think one, and one of the immediate connections why like Common Notions Press, who's the publisher of the book, made sense for this work was also that they, 
they've reprinted Mumia Abu Jamal's autobiography um, and did a and did a, a really good job with that. And I, I always thought like having this work speak to a, a, a long, long legacy of, you know, Black folks in Philadelphia who worked for our liberation, whether it's, you know, Mia Abu-Jamal, Russell Maroon Schultz, whether it's, you know, Paul Robeson, Sadie Tanner, Moselle Alexander, Raymond Pace Alexander, who are like earlier figures within the 20th century. But you can go all the way back to, you know, Harriet Tubman spent time in the city, William Steele, and it's in the names of so many others who in some ways, because they they didn't need to be documented, right, to do the type of liberation work that they were, were seeking, right? Um, and I think that's important to say to, to name too. So it 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 became like, how do we how do we thread that this is not just a moment, right? But that this speaks to a, a much larger legacy that is both, you know, very like local and specific to Philadelphia. But when we talk about the Black radical tradition, it's something that is, you know, that goes across the entire Pan-African world. And but you you see that reflected also in Philadelphia, too. The, the work of threading this sort of like legacy work has, you know, is is deeply important to me and have folks understand that, like, through through all these sort of like, you know, conjunctures, if you will, these sort of like moments of, of crisis, indoor opportunity. We've, we've seen here, we've been here before, our people have been here before, and we've built lessons and we have lessons from that to draw, to draw forward. And in some ways, when you're reading the voices that you might see in this collection, it's echoing the same strategies that folks have taken up in previous generations. So I think I, and we really wanted to, for folks who read this across the generations who are reading it, to, to, see, them, to see themselves as connected as part of this lineage. And we think about, you know, so many people in this city who have done great work doing that, whether it's Anthony Montero or Malefi uh, Kediansante, Walter Palmer, James Spady. Like, there's so many people who have documented and collected this history. Well, me, Abu Jamal, right? You got to lift up just his, like, journalism work as well. So that that archive is something that we want this book to contribute to and be with. Yeah. I'll add something to that too. I think like a minute ago, I said like, while this is not like traditionally an academic or scholarly text, I do think it's very much an educational one. And I think one of the things that came out of the process was just this idea of putting in as much information and education as we possibly could, right? Knowing that like to, to Chris's point, we're pulling from all different sources and we're citing all of the things that have come before us. So one of the things that really struck me in the the formation and like final finalizing the manuscript was really just like the heavy footnoting, right? Like anytime we could cite a source to provide like some deeper context and additional information for somebody, for a reader, it's there. Um, and there are just some really great explanations for somebody to, to come in to read the, read the text and to not feel like they're kept out of this particular space or just understanding movement work and understanding the things that have happened before and also the things that are happening, you know, in the present and unfortunately will happen in the, as we continue this work. So I thought it was really interesting too, that we were able to kind of make those connections too. Like there are things in terms of like, just explanations of like figures, citing other articles, right? Citing other, you know, books. The, the beautiful thing was our crowdsourced um, bibliography at the end. So you know, all the contributors were able to add their own liberation reading list. Like, what books have you have you read throughout 
your own journey that somebody else could pick up um, and also just learn more. Mm -hmm. And what's a key takeaway from this? So like, let's say this is 2040 and Mm. you both are now 20 years out from the events that are outlined in this book. What's something you know that you've carried into that future with you? Mm, that's yeah. a good question. Sure. That's the, <laughs> yeah, that's, sure. Yes. Look, I'm saying that's, to think of 2040. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what's so I'm I'm someone who's like huge on process and not necessarily the products. And I can tell you in terms of the community and the relationships that this book helps document, but also in some ways that it is helping kind of continue. I like, so for example, Malkio Ketch, right? Who's, who worked on sort of like documenting the artifacts of resistance uh, within this collection. Malkia in the Paul Robeson house are now, you know, with the help of the Leeway Foundation, Independence Public Media, shout out to funders, are, is, is now beginning this project of like, archive and collections, right? Helping us through the Paul Robeson House and Museum digitize and document our collections. But also as part of that, we're starting this community engaged process of like what it means for black Philadelphians to, you know, take their own treasured materials and think about their own preservation strategies and think about digitizing and and bringing these things into the light. We're also working closely with Crystal Strong and Mike Africa Jr who are developing the MOVE archive, right? So, and they're digging through, you know, you know, uh, decades and decades of, you know, documents and, photo- and photos that have been, you know, uh, as part of the MOVE organization history and in basements uh, and all, all over the place. So like that process and a staying in integrity to that process, I can, only, I can only imagine what's possible by, you know, 2040. But I think it's accumulates, it's, it's continuing, right? It's something that we sort of stay in the mold of. So I think about like, you know, what does the Freedom Journal platform look like in 2040? And just like, as this community comes to be a small part of that, right? So I, I think about like staying in it and staying committed to that process is um, how we stay free. <laughs> For me, um, I think it's really about just reinforcing the importance of telling our stories and being the ones to, to spearhead, to take control of, of our own narratives um, and document this work as we go forward, not just for posterity's sake or you know, historical kind of context, but just also to leave, to leave tracks, right? Like we've had tracks coming to this point, right? All of us have read a book that has made us go like, whoa right for me probably the autobiography of Malcolm X right so the idea that that book existed so that I can exist in this consciousness today right so without his story my mind might not be formed in the way that it is formed right now or my beliefs might not be formed in the way that they are formed right now so the idea that telling our stories to continue to document our stories to tell them in the first person to tell them in the collective voice to tell them in the conversation, right? To tell them in the choral is so important because, you know, 20 years out from now, nobody will be able to say, this is how it was. We'll be able to pick up how we stay free and say, no, 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 this is how it was. 
like you'll want to rewrite history you'll want to put this kind of nostalgic or romantic gaze we know how media and how, how stories are reshaped to benefit those in power but we'll be able to come back to this collection and say no no this is exactly how it was these were the lessons these were the things that we were able to accomplish and here are the strategies that we can kind of go forth to continue continue to fight and continue to stay free I, I, I love that. And I also want to add, because you brought up the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And Duji uh, Machinda, who's a poet, also amazing DJ, Vinyl Tap 215, he mentioned Hakeem's Bookstore, which we know to be the oldest Black bookstore on the East Coast, um, only second to Marcus Books out in Oakland. And the work of, you know, Dawu Hakeem and, and building up that space. And right now, Ms. Siobhan Blake, who, you know, sustains it. Um, and Duji mentioned, and I think this is like my 2040 moment, right? Duji mentioned, he said, I love Hakeem's because my mom took me there in the early 90s. Yeah. And that's where I got my first copy of auto, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I think I dream, I dream, you know what I'm saying? I think it's, you know, of like in 2040, someone is taking their, you know, black child to Hakeem's bookstore and it's saying, you need to pick up how we stay free off the shelf. So you remember like how I grew up or what we grew up in. I think, you know what I mean? That's a, like, that's it, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. That is, that really is. And thank you for those. So when I was thinking about this book and how it is essential storytelling, it's archival work and it's documentation for what has happened and what is happening. I also think about how those things make space for the future, which is why I asked you that um, last question. But I also want to know what's one thing you both want to see in the future that this collection will have helped contribute to. And so you kind of actually just kind of answered that though, about, you know, seeing like having people have that book on the shelf and like pointing to that for reference. But I don't know if there's something else you want to add that's more you know, solid, because that's a, this is a more solid question, because it can be anything. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe even just beyond engaging with, with the text or reading the book, that I will hope that it would also inspire somebody to, to see how liberatory work can fit into your life, right? Like how it's not just this kind of overarching praxis or idea that you hear in the ether, or that it's anything that's outside of your reach, right? I think some of the pieces that just struck me the most were those personal narratives, Gina Harris from West Philly Bunny Hop, the idea that just in the throes of her own, you know, personal experience during COVID, she was just spurred to action, right? Like that kind of just is like, wow, like that kind of single-mindedness. And I would hope that somebody outside of just like, okay, let me pick up this book, read it. Okay, cool, that's what happened. Like. I've got a feeling I've got something that I need to change in my community and my neighborhood. And I can look to a piece like, like Gina's piece and say, it's not that hard or it's not, it's not, you know, that inaccessible. It's something that I can actually do because I can actually just knock on my neighbor's door and say, Hey, do you need something to eat? A very, I, I like the idea that it would maybe bring down the stakes that sometimes feel too high for us. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think about um, I think about uh, that, too. And I, I, I one of the I think one of the 
sort of, you know, background motivations for why it's a Black-led anthology in Philadelphia is also about the need, the necessity to have a organized Black, like, left or a, a Black progressive movement within the city. And a lot of that is, I mean, we could talk about the history of, you know, factors like, you know, patriarchy, misogyny, uh, homophobia, transphobia, like, there's so many factors which sort of keep us from a forum where we can come together and think about what it means to have an organized Black uh, power like base that is fighting for all of us in this city. So I think if anything that I think in terms of like the study of this book, I think hopes to also emerge is that we need more space, more forums, um, you know, of course, beyond the, you know, uh, white gaze, but beyond just any sort of like, you know, professional gaze. You know, I don't, and I, I, I mean this when we did the book, is like the book is not even exactly about the idea of the activist or the organizer, but rather showing that there are many ways in which organizing and being active and aware is a cultural practice that we are already, always already engaged in, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about how do we lift up that like community power to understand and, and um, build an agenda for our folks? And then how do we create like forums within our dignity where we can speak to the you know principles and contradictions behind these issues? Mm-hmm. Um, I hope out of the outcome of the study of this collection is more spaces where we can do that, right? Where we can sort of like one, look at, look at ourselves, look at internally and talk about our own growth and development, but also speak to our need as a city. Um, to really come together and talk about like what does this ecosystem of 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 you know freedom dreams and organizing and mutual aid and community care what what can we really do like when we come together and build like a a unified front? Yeah, I love that. I think in your piece too, um, Rashid, it was that was very like abundantly clear in terms of just the conversation that you had with Dr. Stephanie and Nina, in terms of just like that kind of personal exploration, right? And just kind of like you were able to take abolition as a theory and a praxis and like put it into the hearts <laughs> of yourselves and the conversation that it just struck me to the point that I was like, if, if somebody can't understand this concept or if they are, you know, they just don't believe in it or, Um, they have a difference of opinion to read that conversation and to see the way that the three of you were able to kind of just wrestle with all of that in your own personal lives and your own personal like practice it to me was just like they'll be able to just understand it right then and there and I love I love that about uh, y'all's conversation Mm -hmm. and Chris you did ask me earlier to just kind of reflect a little bit on that Mm -hmm. and so that piece and what it did for me, well, first of all, the piece for folks who don't know is basically an examination of Freedom John as like a tool, like an online digital tool for, you know, movement building, liberation, mutual aid, things of that nature. So what it got to do for me was kind of reflect on my work. I don't, I think a lot of times when we do work and we are consistently doing it, we sometimes forget to see it. We forget to see it as the crucial piece of work it is because it kind of becomes ingrained in me. So I wake up every day and interact with that page, right? So that just feels like very schedule-like. So I never really have a time to just sit back and be like, oh, like, what is this doing for people? So when it was given the opportunity, like, I literally sat there. I am able to write things, like, 
off the top of my head, honestly, really quickly. That's honestly how I got through college. I used to write papers and then find the sources after. Um, that's a tip for people. <laughs> but I just was able to actually just sit there and think about the concept of how it even navigates safety and what, what it was, especially out in its inception. So when it was conceived, it was literally a page where people could go to to see where the National Guard, the state, and the police were, if they felt unsafe around those forces. And people have to remember around that time, too, we also had to vote at that time because it was pushed back, right? Because of the pandemic. And so when you think about not just, hmm, when you think about in general, what that means for people at that time, right? It's like you start to make connections to things like voter suppression and things of that nature. And that kind of felt like that as well. And so even myself, I was left out of voting that year because it was like, oh, they didn't send me the right ballot, but they were like, you can always go downtown. And I'm like, go downtown. Like, you mean where those girls is like, you know, stacked up outside City Hall? Pass. Um, and so it just made me have to just sit back and really reflect and really think about like really how I was feeling. And then also what it feels like to be on the other side of that screen and to actually feel empowered by something that I feel to just be like everyday stuff for me. So that's really just how I felt about that. But thank you both for sharing that as well. And I did want to just give that reflection. Any final remarks or anything that you want to leave with our listeners? Buy the book. <laughs> um, sit with it. Luxuriate with it. I really hope that people just, just read it and feel held, feel um, that they take something from it, that they learn something about 2020, but just also about like where they might go forward and hopefully where Black people are going forward. That's my last bit. I would say, you know, get the book, like buy it if you can. We're also going to be really working to get the book across the free library system. I want to give a special shout out to the concerned Black workers of the Free Library of Philadelphia who are documented in the appendix, but have been great about making sure that this book is going to make its way through the free library system. Additionally, working with the School District of Philadelphia, you know, a really good friend of mine, Ishmael Jimenez, is part of Social Studies and Curriculum and does a lot with African-American studies history requirement across the school district. So trying to find ways to weave the book and in terms and getting that into African-American history classes all across the school district. We're working on a study guide that is coming out you know, working closely with Ansharae Hines right now to kind of like develop out that study guide. Because I think the, the book is about in inquiry to action, right? How do you move from a space of reading, consuming, reflecting on these uh, stories and lessons and strategies, and then finding spaces to experiment, right? About what that looks like for you and where your role is uh, within this ecosystem. So yeah, get the book, uh, howwestayfree.com. We also have extended content that um i gotta get on that this week and get the rest of it up but how we stay free.com we'll have some extended content there too that didn't make the book but we want to give it a uh, highlight um to keep shining once again that was chris rogers and faja muhammad talking about their new book yeah. how we stay free yeah. notes on a black uprising Bayou loves books yeah. right now you can purchase it through common notions at harriet's bookshop or at Making World Books. Well, Germantown, it is about that time. If you have a story you want to hear covered, please contact us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com 
or you can text InfoHub to 73224 to start asking us some questions. Additionally, we encourage our listeners to text the Equally Informed Philly Text Line, another program under Resolve Philly, which allows Philadelphians to gain access to information regarding Philadelphia services. Equally Informed Philly is a direct response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and their team works to bridge the information divide, reducing barriers for vulnerable residents who need trustworthy information to live and thrive in Philadelphia. They also invest deeply in underestimated voices and community storytellers. Ryu, thank you for being a great journalist. Equally Informed provides a community-driven print newsletter and the Equal InfoLine, a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that also provides vetted local news and resources to subscribers. And you can text that number also at 73224. And that's about it. Remember, I'm Rashida Jamu, aka Philly's Freedom John. And this is Maleka Fruin and Vayu. Thank you to our guests for joining us today. Thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging. And thank you to Vayu for being an inspiring journalist, as always. And until next week, good night, Germantown.